going to ask you to take God's Word in your hands and turn to the book of James uh, for the last time for us as a church body. Hopefully it won't be the last time you open the book of James. And I hope and pray that uh, our time since the beginning of the year that we began this book has been a time of, of great challenge for you as a follower of Jesus Christ. We've been in this series that we've entitled Real Faith, Real Life from the book of James, a book of the New Testament that was written by Jesus' half-brother who came to a deep and profound relationship with his brother, not in just a sibling way, but he came to realize that this half-brother of his was the Savior and Lord of the world. And he came to realize that after the resurrection, he had seen his brother die, go into a grave, and now he saw him alive and, and resurrected. And he gave his life and devoted his life to following uh, his Lord and Savior uh, to the very end of his life where he would be martyred for his faith. And he wrote this letter to a group of Christians who, like us, are kind of scattered all over the place and, and living life in different ways and in different jobs and in different neighborhoods. And his calling was that we might live, just as they were called, to live a real faith during the real elements and moments of, of life. And during this series, there's a couple of things that I've been praying would happen in the life of our church. The first thing my hope was is that we would devote ourselves to knowing, and this is very important, and in some ways is a lost art in churches today, that we would know who the audience was and who the writer was and how God was changing them through his word. And we learned throughout this time what that first century audience was like, some of the things that they were dealing with. We saw that some of the things that they were dealing with are different than what we might have been dealing with. But there were a lot of things that were very similar. And so we've gotten to know an ancient audience and seen how they walked and how they lived a life with the God whom they called their Savior and Lord. The second thing that I hoped would happen, and I'm praying that that is the case, is that as we have studied the book of James, that we would learn a little bit about ourselves. The book of James tells us that the Bible is to be used in our life as a mirror, that we are to look and see our image in the uh, uh, mirror of Scripture. And hopefully as we've gone through this study, you've learned a little bit about yourself. You've learned about maybe some areas that need some challenge, that maybe are areas that need some confrontation, if you will, where you need to fix some things. You need to turn to God and confess some things. Maybe there are some disciplines that you've allowed to be lacking in your life. And as we've been confronted by God's Word, it's enabled us to, to see areas that need improvement. But most importantly, I hope that you've seen the Gospel I hope that you've seen Jesus Christ. I hope that you've seen that uh, we can do none of this on our own. We cannot real, live real faith in real life without Jesus empowering us by his spirit. And that you would see, as you've heard uh, James rehearse the words of his brother Jesus over and over again in this letter, that you would see that Jesus is the one who enables us to live out of real faith and not just profess one and to listen, of, listen to the word, but be doers of it as well. And so I hope and pray this has been a blessing. Anytime we close out a series, I will ask, did we teach enough? Did we uh, articulate enough? Have we applied enough? And I will tell you, as I've heard and as I've listened to you talk, I, I'm blown away with how God has used this letter to change lives. And we look forward to what God's going to be teaching us in the series that are to come. But let's close out this letter by looking at the last two verses of the book of James. James chapter 5, verses 19 
and 20. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, grab that Bible in the pew rack in front of you or in the chairs around you. You'll find our passage on page 1013. Now, we're going to be in the book of James, the last two verses, so I want you to put a kind of a finger or a piece of paper in there, and we're going to go back a couple times to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is right before the book of James, so you're not going to have to go far, but we're going to see that Hebrews spells out what James is talking about in these last two verses, so we'll be bouncing back and forth. But let me read our passage and then ask God's blessing on our time. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of of sins. Let's pray. Father God, we ask that you would speak to us this morning as you have already in these many, many weeks as we've studied this book, that you would allow us to finish well now with these last two verses of this great letter. Lord, thank you for challenging us through this letter. Thank you for confronting us with some areas that maybe we need to improve in. Lord, I pray that we would not do that in our own strength, but we would run to you and we would rest in your ability to change our hearts and our minds for our good and your glory. Lord, I pray uh, that as we uh, come to a passage like this, that we would not very quickly externalize it or, or look to others being a problem, but we would do some internal work as well, that we would ask the question this morning, am I wandering? And maybe I don't even know it. Lord, confront us by your word this morning so that we would know that we are right where you want us to be. Lord, I pray that we would be a blessing to those who maybe are wandering, that we would go after them in love and seek to do all that we can to bring them back to the truth. Thank you for this mission you've given us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen. Well, this morning, I want to talk under the heading, God's Search and Rescue Team. And uh, one of the most underappreciated branches of our military is the Coast Guard. We hear a lot about the Army. We hear a lot about the Air Force, the Navy, and the Marines. But we hear very little with regards to the Coast Guard. And the Coast Guard's been around for a long time, since the days of George Washington. The Coast Guard was established, I believe, in 1790. And uh, its job was to make sure, uh, its name, that our coasts were guarded from both foreign uh, invaders as well as any kind of peril that the seas might bring. And, and it still does that job today. It has a threefold purpose uh, under their website. It says that the Coast Guard exists for maritime safety, maritime stewardship, and maritime search and rescue. It's the last one that I want to hone in on this morning, this idea of search and rescue. Uh, their search and rescue motto is always ready. Always be ready. And, and this search and rescue, uh, these individuals, as you can see in the picture, put themselves in harm's way. They go into the most difficult of circumstances, not because they want to, but because they have to. Why? Because someone has found themselves in a place of peril and in need of rescue. According to their own audit report, the Coast Guard went on 50,000 search and rescue missions just last year alone. In the process, almost 10,000 people found themselves in life-threatening situations. Of those, about 9,000 uh, were rescued. 
about, uh, about 700 found themselves losing their life. And so these guys are lifesavers. These guys uh, have themselves being put in all kinds of peril so that they can rescue those that find themselves in trouble that they can't get themselves out of. Uh, after Hurricane Katrina, a big uh, featured article was done in Time magazine with regards to the Coast Guard because during Hurricane Katrina, the Coast Guard had the largest mission it had ever had before. And they were interviewing one of the captains of the search and rescue team, and he said this, which I thought was kind of unique. He said, in all of their armed forces, it's all about mission. So in the four other branches of the military, you practice for war, you train for war. But in the Coast Guard, our mission is people. You take care of people, and the mission will take care of itself. I honed in on that phrase, if we take care of people, the mission will take care of itself. I believe what James is saying is that we are a part of God's search and rescue team. The mission of making disciples, the mission of uh, going out in the world and proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ is only good if we share that with people. If we go and look for people who are lost. This passage of scripture before us is a call to evangelism. But it's not simply a call to evangelism, it's also a calling of evaluation. You see, what we're going to learn this morning is that there's a certain kind of person who's wandering away. And it's real quick for us to look at the teenager down the pew from us, or our son, or our daughter, or our husband, or spouse, or, or someone else to say maybe they're wandering without ever asking the question, am I wandering? Do I find myself in a place that maybe I don't even know it yet, but I'm in great spiritual peril and in need of rescue? This morning, I want to look at these two verses under three headings. The first one I want us to look at is that in this passage is a caution for all of us to heed. A caution for all of us to heed. Notice verse 19. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings a sinner back from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover him a multitude of sins. If we're not careful, we may misidentify who James is talking about. So let's look at a couple of things that are articulated. We have to ask the question, who is about to go astray? And the answer is a bit of a complex one, one that scholars struggle with uh, in interpreting. And I'm going to try to help us do it. Notice, first of all, that he begins the passage with my brothers. He's done this eight times. So he's talking to a group of people that he believes is a part of the family of God. It would be like me talking with you, my brothers and sisters in Christ. But then he goes on, he says, if anyone amongst us in the church wanders away. But later on, notice in the text that he calls this person a sinner. And when we are identified as followers of Jesus Christ in the New Testament, we are not identified as sinners, even though we still may be. But because of our positioning in Christ, we are called saints. So we've got a problem. James is saying, my brothers, if anyone amongst you in the church wanders away and someone brings him back, who is that guy back, that sinner back, you cover a multitude of sins and you save his soul. So there's terminology that's being used of a Christian, but also of an unbeliever. What are we to make of this? I believe what James is talking about is that there are some within the church, and he's already talked about this, 
that have a dead faith. They profess a belief in Jesus Christ. They profess their faith, but they're not doing anything about it. This individual thinks, because I'm a part of the church, because maybe I'm doing some religious things, that I'm saved. But in fact, as they've wandered away from the truth, it has been proven that they were never saved in the first place. And so this one who was in the church, this one that was amongst the people of God, though they may have thought because of the insulation of the church, they were in faith, that in fact, as James said, their faith was dead, and they never knew the Lord. Jesus would talk about this, and I wonder if James is hitting on this, because in Matthew chapter 7... Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, listen, many on that day, the last day of judgment, will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, did I not prophesy in your name? Did I not cast demons out in your name? Didn't I do all the religious things you told me to do? And Jesus will shock them. Jesus will surprise them on that day and he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. Now there's a dichotomy there, a division there that we have to understand. The division is, is that the person, when stepping before the Lord, truthfully says, Lord, I knew you. And Jesus says very truthfully, no you didn't. I want you to know, and this is a very important lesson from the book of James, that we ought to test ourselves. Because many times we presume upon God what God doesn't presume upon us. That there is a chance, a probability that some of us will stand before God and will have deceived ourselves throughout our life here on earth, thinking we were in, and Jesus will tell us, no, no, in fact, you were not. And the sad dilemma is, is that at that moment, it will be too late. At that moment, you will not be ushered into a place of eternal bliss, but a place of destruction where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so James says, listen, before I close out this letter, every one of us should test our faith. Everyone should uh, be reminded to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And so James says there's a real possibility, there's a real probability that some among us will wander away from the truth and they will prove in their wandering they were never saved in the first place. And what the church is supposed to do is to run after them as Jesus left the 99 and went for the one and brought back the one who had wandered or gone astray and to bring him back in the fold. And this is a reminder for us that we should again not presume things that God hasn't presumed for ourselves. Remember that with salvation, there's always what the Bible calls conditional clauses. That phrase, if, you are my disciples if you continue obeying my commands. You are my disciples if you continue to abide in me. That word, if, is a condition. And so we say, well, I walked down the aisle and I raised my hand and I wrote on the prayer card that I accepted Jesus as my Savior. I I, I made a confession. Maybe I got baptized. I did all this stuff. But there's been no real change in me. Some of us are relying on something we did in the past, not in the obedience of the present to prove our salvation. James says, be careful. Be careful because maybe you have wandered away from the truth. It's a reminder of an evaluation that needs to be done and the evangelism that we're called to do. 
So who's the person? This is a person who was a part of the church, was a person who professed to be a believer, who would have said at some point they were a part of the brotherhood of Christ and a brotherhood of the church, but now had wandered away, and the litmus test was, in responding to them in their wanderings, would they obey and come back to a saving knowledge of the truth, or would they continue to wander away from God? The second question we have to ask is, okay, who's the person going astray? And second, is it still happening today? Just because it was happening in the book of James doesn't mean that it's happening today. And so there was a time, there was a moment. Why? Why would the people in James's day, these people who profess to be believers, wander away from the truth? The answer is persecution. Remember, at the book, beginning of the book of James, we know that these people are scattered all around. Why? Because they had to run for their lives. They were refugees running from their homeland because being a Christian was a cardinal vice to the ruling governments of their day. It was an illegal activity. And so they were being hunted down. They were losing their property. They were losing their homes. They were being kicked out of their families. And they were being sent off to far off places and cultures and lands where they didn't know the language and they didn't have their body of believers around them. And at some point, some of them said, it's just too hard to be a Christian. It's not worth it. What has Jesus done for me lately? I'm giving up. I'm walking away. It's just, it's too difficult. It's not worth it. And so the question is today, with very, very little persecution going on in our land, we have to ask the question, well, are people still wandering? And I want you to know this morning that this was a problem in the first century for what I would say is a noble reason, the idea of persecution. It wasn't easy being a Christian. And it was understandable that some would grow weary and be tempted to give up. But what about in 2017 here in the Chicagoland area? Is wandering still an issue? My response is I think it's an even bigger problem today than it was in the book of James. Let me give you a couple reasons this morning why. Wandering, write this down. I didn't put it in your outline, so you'll need to write it down. Wandering, first of all, is a bigger issue, I think, today than it was before because our perspective on Christianity is just plain wrong. We've got a warped view of Christianity. So our Christianity is built on coming to a place. I go to church. I go to this place. Where do you go to church? I go to church in Sugar Grove. Where is your church located? It's located at the corner of Bliss and Route 47. It's a place. The problem is the New Testament never speaks about the church as a place, but as a people. The word literally church is the Greek word ekklesia, an assembly of people. So in the Greek terminology, I would point out and I would say, here's a church. It's all you people. Whether we were sitting in lawn chairs out in the grass with no building or roof over us, as wherever we assembled, whether it was here or in someone's backyard, we are an assembly of what? An assembly of Christians. It's a family. It's a group of people that we belong to, not a place that we go. Now here's the problem. About a hundred years ago, this wouldn't have been an issue. Because you would not have had a place you would go to that was outside of the people you were a part of. And what I mean by that is a hundred years ago, everybody went to church in their own neighborhood. Why? Because the only way you were going to get somewhere else is get on your horse and ride a couple miles maybe, but not very far. You're not going to go 30 miles. There was no way you were going to do that back in the day. But what's changed that is cars. 
And so now, instead of going to church with people we're doing life together with, we go to church with strangers. We go to church with people that we never live life together with. Back in the day, church would gather. It was a central part of the life and fabric of people that they would go to church in the morning on Sunday and at night. They would go to church on Wednesdays. And they would spend time with people all the time because they were living life together. They were doing life together. They would see uh, each other at school activities. They would see each other in workplace scenarios because the town or the neighborhood was a confined area because nobody ventured too far off. But the car now has us commuting, has us commuting for work, has us commuting for activities. It has us commuting for church. And so now the church is a place where we go, where we spectate, because we really don't know the people around us. And it allows, listen, it allows for wandering to become very easy. I had someone in the church that recently left the church, and they said, nobody's asked where we've been. And I said, well, how involved were you within the church when you left? They said, we were there on Sundays. How much time was dedicated outside of you sitting when you can't talk? By the way, you can't talk during this time to one another. How much time? He said, well, maybe 10 minutes. Well, I'll tell you, if you're only hanging around here for 10 minutes and you all of a sudden leave, yeah, nobody's going to know you're gone. And the reason why is there's no connection, there's no, no life. So while I get the church can always be more hospitable, uh, you've got to want to be known to be known. It's the only way it's going to happen. You've got to put yourself out there, you've got to engage. And I know that's hard for some of my introverted friends, but that's the case because wandering is very easy. The other problem is, wandering is easy because we can fill our life today with so much stuff. We can fill our life with all kinds of activities. So now studies tell us that church going or church attendance is around an all-time low around 40% of the time. So people, listen, who call themselves followers of Jesus Christ, who say they want to be at church, are at church about 45% of the time. Now we're doing better than that. Our church attendance of people that call Village Bible Church their home is 20% better than that. We're about 65%, all right? That means on any given Sunday, we have a third of our church that's not here, all right? That's going to be hard because if you have that kind of transition happening all the time, then it's going to be hard to know who your family is at any given time. Someone was amazed. He said, we must have had tons of visitors on Easter Sunday. Our Easter Sunday attendance just for this campus was around 1,100 people. On an average Sunday, we average about 700 uh, on a Sunday morning. And someone said, we had, we had 400 visitors. I said, no. What we had is about 100 visitors and our entire church family. Okay? Because everybody made a commitment on Easter Sunday to be here. And so our church looked very, very different. Think about this. We had to add a service to fill our family, to take care of our family all showing up. Now, I don't want to speak in a way of legalism, but I want you to know we are the frog in the kettle of culture. And what we've accepted is that church is different than what the New Testament said it was. Number two, church is no longer a priority. It's no longer a priority. It is lowered down on our priority list. 
Now, if you thought I was hitting you hard, buckle your seatbelts. Because here's the thing that I want to caution us with. One of the worst times in my life as a pastor is happening right now. And here's the reason why. I'm a shepherd. And I want to see my sheep. And I want to know that my sheep are taken care of and and, and well fed and all of that. And herein lies the problem. Everything is shutting down for the summer. Ministries, 90% of our ministries have come to an end either this week or, or next week. And one of the big reasons why is because people say, I'm busy. I'm tired. I, I, I want some time off. Nowhere in the five chapters of the book of James do we ever say, hey, it's summertime, everybody. We'll see you back in the fall. But we've created this culture. We've created this culture that church takes a back seat during the summer. Now listen, I I get that there's times and seasons, there's cycles and all of that to things. There's a time under the sun for every season, right? But let's make sure that during the summertime months, we don't say that church now takes a lesser priority, but that our priority may see itself being lived out in different ways. So as a pastor, here's what I worry about. That we're going to neglect assembling with one another. Attendance has already dropped for the summer. It's already dropped. We have less people attending just because the weather got nicer. I never see within the New Testament that that is a reality. Church was a priority. And we need to make sure that we are living out this priority, not as a way of crossing it off our list, but because being a part of an assembly of people we're going to learn from James is very important. Number three, our perspective is wrong. Church is low on our priority list. And number three, we see Christianity as a private thing. This is an American manufactured item. Because we have rugged individualism, we want to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, what we do is incredibly private, and what we have done is we have changed Christianity from being a personal thing to a private thing. Personal and private are very different. Personal says that you're on the hook for it. So you're on the hook for your own faith. Your parents can't have your faith. Uh, your spouse can't be the one that exhibits faith for you. Your pastor can't do it. You have to bow the knee to Jesus Christ. It can't be private, but it can be personal. Private says, my faith is my business, not yours. You say, well, of course I don't do that, but I'm here to contend this morning that we come into church with a smile, but we're also wearing a necklace that has a big sign that says no trespassing over it. And what we say is, listen, I'll talk sports, I'll talk weather, I'll talk about the events of the world, but don't ask me about my marriage with my wife. Don't ask me about the sins that maybe I struggled with this week. Don't ask about my spiritual disciplines. Don't go there. Don't go there because you shouldn't. It's not your place. It's not your... I'm a private person. And those things are between me and God. And I want you to know something. The Bible never talks about it that way. The Bible just has told us we are to pray for one another and we are to confess our sins one to another. James has just talked about that. And those things are absent in our Christian life here in America because American Christianity says faith is a private thing. And that's not true. A private faith is really no faith at all. 
Number four, an important truth that we need to see is that not only is Christianity a private thing, but perseverance through Christian community is a lost theology. Is a lost theology. Christianity is not simply about you, it's about us. Yes, we come to Christ personally, but the moment we come to Christ personally, we are entered into a body collectively. And we live life together. That's why there are 59 one another commands. That's why the church is here. That's why we fill uh, this place on Sundays. We gather together because it is not good enough for us to do Christianity on our own. We need one another. We need one another to encourage one another. We need one another to be kind to one another. We need one another to serve one another, to admonish one another, to at times rebuke one another. Uh, you notice we, we need to live in harmony with one another, devoted to one another, pray for one another, be truthful to one another. There's more than 34, I think, that are listed there. There's a lot of one another commands. And if we are living our faith out by ourselves then we're living out a faith that is different than the New Testament because the New Testament is full that to live out real faith is to live it out with other people. And yet we fail to do that. And I'm going to give you an example why. So one of the ones that we're called to do is to serve one another. In your um, by, uh, bulletin inserts today, you see this colorful sheet of paper. And, and you may say, okay, the church has needs. That's, that's nice. But I want you to know that there are people whose faith is relying on you to serve them. And if you notice, we've got a lot of numbers on these things. These aren't made-up numbers. These are real numbers of real needs. And a lot of them, by the way, if you look, the majority of them are for our children and our teenagers. Now, why would we invest so much time and energy on our children and our teenagers? Because our children and our teenagers are the most at risk for wandering away. They're most at risk for not believing in the claims of the Scriptures. They're most at risk for walking away from the faith. In fact, study after study says that uh, our Christian teenagers, once they get into college, uh, a massive majority of them, praise God, that's not the number that's here, but amongst evangelical churches, like 75, 80% of them will walk away from the faith by the time they graduate college. And so what the church is saying is we need help. We need one another's to come alongside these children and these teenagers and to minister to them and teach them and admonish them and do all of these things for them so that they can see real faith in real life lived out. You don't think Village Bible Church has a problem with the things that I've listed under point one? Then each of these would have a zero around them. Because we're too busy... Because church isn't a priority. Because we think, hey, the kids are on their own. I do it by myself. Let the kids do it by themselves. We have lost what it means to be the church of the living God. We're missing it. And in doing so, we are the frog in the kettle that doesn't understand that our Christianity is not the Christianity that is there. That was there in the book of James. Turn in your Bibles for a moment to the book of Hebrews. I want you to see something of great importance. Hebrews goes over this again and again and again. This idea of people that were eager to wander away. And the writer of Hebrews says, stay, stay, be faithful, persevere. 
Hebrews chapter 10. Let's start there. Hebrews chapter 10. Just a couple pages over from the book of James. Hebrews chapter 10. In verse 23, it starts out. And it says, let us collectively, not by ourselves, let us, plural, hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, without wandering away. Let us remain steadfast, he says. Well, how do we do that? Let us consider how to spur one another on towards love and good deeds. And let us not neglect meeting together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more you see the day drawing near. God is coming back, and until He comes back, He wants us together with one another, serving one another, stirring one another up towards love and good deeds. Why? Because you are the way that God is going to make sure I stay faithful. And I am the way that God is going to use others to keep you faithful so my job is to use my gifts so you remain faithful and God's calling you to use your gifts so that I will remain faithful we need one another we need one another in our lives because as the hymn writer says we are prone to wander Lord we feel it we're prone to leave the God we love And so each and every week we come in and we're reminded why we shouldn't wander. We're reminded about the goodness and faithfulness of God. How are we reminded? Does a voice come down from heaven that says, Hey, hey, Village Bible Church, don't wander. I'm faithful. No, God uses people like myself and people like you to remind one another, to encourage one another, to spur one another on so that we hear the voice of God through the hands and feet of Jesus. We need one another. And so this is a reminder that maybe today you're wandering and you don't even know it. You're neglecting the faith and you find yourself in a place of peril. Notice the second thing this morning, the root causes to such wandering. What causes it? What causes it? James goes on and he says that we have wandered. That's an important word. It's used twice in our text. The first time it's used, it says, those who, uh, let's see here, those who wander from the truth. And then it says, let him know, verse 20, that whoever brings a sinner back from his wandering. So twice the root word is used, but it's used in different ways. I want you to know that that Greek word for wander is an important word. It's the Greek word planeo, planeo. And it's where we get our English word planet from. And the reason why they use this word is the ancients would look up into the stars and they would see that there were some stars that never moved. But then there were other stars that moved. And there was a difference between some that were always in the same place, the Big Dipper, Little Dipper, they're there. But there were other ones, they would move about the sky. They were planets in their orbit. And what they didn't understand was that they were in an orbit. What they saw was that they were wandering around the sky, seemingly aimlessly. And they would say, they're wandering. Those are those planets, those wanderers. And and the phrase, to wander, um, it was a phrase that Greek word planeo is also translated in the book of James, James 1.16, those who have been deceived. 
So this wandering had this idea that they wandered away from the truth because someone deceived them, whether the devil, whether culture, whether some temptation, something was drawing them away. The first use of the word wander is found in what is called the passive voice. The passive voice is something is urging, something is tempting, something is drawing the individual away. There's a force, there's a a, uh, gravitational pull away from the truth by something else. And so we need to be very gracious to these people because these people per se haven't just made a decision, I'm leaving, I'm out of here. Something has tempted them away. It has enticed them and it's drawn them away, the book of James chapter 1 says. But when it says his wandering in verse 20, it goes from passive voice to what is called middle voice. And middle voice says that it's not simply something that's being drawn from the outside, pulling you from in out, but it's something that now you are responsible for. So at some point, yes, you were tempted, you were drawn out. So maybe it was hanging out with some friends or involving yourself in different activities that you start walking away from the truth, walking away from the people of God. But at some point, your temptation becomes a justified decision. And you make a decision saying, I'm out of here. I don't want to go to church anymore. I don't want to follow the precepts of God anymore. I want to do my own thing. And so it goes from being attempting an enticement to something that you actually make a decision about. Now, what's the process that this takes place? The book of Hebrews shows us. Write these down. First of all, it begins with what we call a spiritual neglect. Spiritual neglect. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews chapter 2 for a moment. Hebrews chapter 2. I want you to see this with your own eyes. So turn there with me. Hebrews chapter 2. Verses 2 and 3. It says, Therefore, let's start with verse 1, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Step one is a drifting. It is a neglect. It is allowing spiritual cobwebs to take place in your life. This isn't heinous. This isn't heinous sin. This is just abandoning the spiritual disciplines that you've been called to. Be careful when you start saying, you know what, there's better things to do on Sunday than be at church. There's better things to do each day than read my Bible or fellowship with God's people. There are better things to do. That's spiritual neglect. It won't, it won't uh, um, destroy or shipwreck your faith <clears throat> in the first week. <clears throat> but what it will do is allow for spiritual neglect to take place. D.A. Carson puts it this way. He says, we never drift towards holiness. We don't drift towards godliness. We don't drift towards prayer, towards obedience. We don't drift to scripture, faith. We don't drift into delighting in the Lord. What we drift into is compromise, but we call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience, and we call it freedom. We drift towards superstition, and we call it faith. 
We drift towards prayerlessness and we delude ourselves into thinking that we've escaped legalism. That we drift towards godlessness and convince ourselves that we have somehow been liberated. You see, there is something about spiritual neglect that if we're not careful, if we are not diligent, that it will start to happen. Listen, you're either going one or the other way. Going towards God, full steam ahead, or drifting apart from God in neglect. Spiritual neglect. Number two, spiritual insensitivity. Go Turn a page over to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 13. Take care, <clears throat> my brothers, lest there be any of you an evil and unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. So what's the answer, writer of Hebrews? Exhort one another every day, as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Let's well, stop there. So you've gone and you've stopped doing the needed things to order your faith, the spiritual disciplines of prayer and study and fellowship. You're not living out the one another <clears throat> commands. But now you've become spiritually insensitive. And what that means is you've become calloused. The things that once used to burden your heart no longer do. You used to miss missing a Sunday in church. Now if you've been gone a month, it really doesn't matter. The things that used to concern you about sin, the things that you saw on TV that would, would, would cut to the heart, no longer do. You laugh at those things. You, you, you make light of them. Uh, you now are calloused. Many of you know I work in the food service business as well as pastor. And my employees at my catering business will laugh all the time because I can grab hot things uh, that usually they need potholders to grab. And they'll say, do you have no feeling in your hands? And in a lot of ways, no, I don't. I've been around hot stuff. I've burned myself enough that my hands are callous to a lot of the high temperatures that bother a lot of people because I've been around it so long, it no longer bothers me. Spiritual insensitivity means that when you're around sin, it's no longer a bother. It doesn't affect you like it used to because you've grown callous to it. And what we need is when we grow callous in our sin, we need someone else to say, hey, that should be burning your hand. You, you, should, you should insulate yourself from that. That's dangerous. And even though you don't feel very sinful about it, that's sinful and you need to, you need to be admonished in that way. It leads to the next step, which is neglect and sensitivity to spiritual dullness. Turn your Bibles a couple chapters over now in the book of Hebrews to Hebrews chapter 5. A page over to Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. Now, notice in my, my Bible, the heading there is warning against apostasy, warning against wandering. And it says in verse 11, about this apostasy, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. That word dull in the Greek literally is you become mule-headed. You're stubborn. So now someone comes and says, hey, I've been noticing you haven't been at church that much. Is everything all right? Hey, it's none of your business. We've had things going on. And it moves to, we haven't seen you for the last couple months. 
We haven't seen you at small group. We miss you. How are things going? You know, we've got other things going on. Really, hey, at the end of the day, if, uh, um, you know, the world is God's home, and so as long as I'm in the world, I'm in God's house, you know, I can worship God on the golf course, right? But then it moves to a different place, and it moves to, hey, listen, stay out of my business. The mule-headed picture is a beautiful picture because anytime anybody gets close to you, you start kicking, Stay away. It's none of your business. My faith is private. Who are you to judge me? Why don't you worry about your own stuff? Don't you have sins in your life you need to worry about? And it's moved from just a neglect or an insensitivity. Now you're getting upset. Now you're starting to put up defense mechanisms that that are fighting against the very people who are trying to come and help you from deeper and deeper wandering away from the truth. And notice the next thing. Flagrant rebellion. Flagrant rebellion. In Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 and 27, very scary verses. For if we go on sinning deliberately after we receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries of God. Wow! So what, what, what the writer of Hebrews is saying is, you've gone down a progression. You've started with neglecting the spiritual disciplines to having an insensitivity. Sin no longer bothers you. Now if anybody talks to you, you're so dull of, of hearing that now you're stubborn to hear what God's people have to say. And now you're in flagrant rebellion. And you're saying, listen, I don't want any of your help. I don't care about you guys. You guys go do your little church thing. I'm enjoying the world. I'm enjoying my sin. And what is the response of the church? Beware. Hell is coming your way. And why? Why is there no sacrifice for sins? What the writer of Hebrews is saying is, when a person has been with you, and now no longer is, there's no new way to bring them back. What's the way you bring them back? The gospel. Been there, done that, right? They've heard it. They know Jesus saves people from sins. They know that they're to repent and turn back to God. They know all that. It's not like we got a different bullet in the chamber that's going to help in this situation. The one thing we've got is the sacrifice for sins of Jesus Christ. That person's been there, done it. He may have even taught about it because he may have been involved in the teaching ministry of the church. You aren't going to win them with anything new. And so the only thing you've got left is a warning. Hey, you better turn around. You better turn tail Because you're on your way to hell. You're on your way to a fiery judgment from God. We scare them. We don't scare them with empty threats. We scare them with the threat of God saying, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. Don't go there. So this begs the question this morning. First of all, evaluation. Second, evangelism. Evaluation, are you wandering? Is there some spiritual neglect in your life? Is there insensitivity? Is there dullness? Might there be flagrant rebellion? Most of the time, most of this you'll never see in a person's body language, but it's in their heart. You know where you're at. You know what's going on in your heart. Now the Bible says they've wandered from the truth. There are these planets that are wandering from the truth. The truth is twofold. The people of God, you were amongst them and now you're not. You've wandered away from the them. 
and you've wandered away from the truth. You've wandered away from the doctrine of the truth and the morals of the truth of the Word of God. And so usually it starts with doctrine, our view of God is skewed, and then our activities become sinful. And so you'll know, how do I view God? How do I view God's people? And how do I view my lifestyle? Is it one that honors God? Or is it one that's wandered away into sin? Where are you at this morning? Number two, do you know the people of God around you enough that you could evaluate if that's true in their own life? Or have you bought into the idea that church is a private thing, something that you go to, and that you don't have to worry about anybody else? Listen, our third point is that this is a calling that we've been given for one another. This is our calling. Notice he goes on and he says, okay, he enters in stage left, another character. So we got the wanderer, but notice, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders, there's the first individual, from the truth, and someone, second individual, brings him back, let that person, the rescuer, know that when he brings a sinner back from his wandering, this rescuer will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. I want you to know something. What James finishes up in this letter is deeply theological. Because what the, the uh, rescuer is doing is something that we usually will give to God. Notice the rescuer comes in, and the rescuer does two things. He saves the person's soul, and he covers a multitude of sins. Two things everywhere else in Scripture we see God does. God saves people. And God covers multitudes of sins. James makes it incredibly clear that the rescuer, you, living out the one another commands, who sees someone wander and goes after them, enters into a godlike activity that has been reserved for God, but God has allowed to enter into this. How does this take place? John Piper uses this illustration, which I think is great. God, being the lumberjack, has a job of cutting down trees. How does God do it? He uses an axe. What God is doing in this scenario is He is going after those who are wandering. Like God, the lumberjack, who uses an axe to cut down trees, God uses us to go after wanderers. Who brings them back? Well, God does. How does He do it? By using you. And so the way he's going to do it is he's going to use people around the wanderer to go after them. And God says, when you do that, you get to say, I help save that person's soul. You get to say, I help cover a multitude of sins. Just as the axe gets to say, I cut down trees. I cut it down. I can take possession of that. I saved so-and-so's soul. Did I do it all? No, but God used me in such a way that in concert with God, God and I were able to save that individual and cover them from a multitude of sins. Now, how does that happen? How does that take place? Well, the first thing is, the saving of the soul is going and redeeming and rescuing. It is leaving where you're at and going to where they're at. Now, I want you to notice something very important. I didn't even share this in the first sermon, and to their shame, so they'll have to listen. When we go and rescue, we leave where we were, and we go to where they were. How are we a part of of God in that? Because we do exactly what Jesus did. Jesus left heaven 
the safe place, and he went to the dangerous place, earth. He left his abode where he was comfortable, where everything was, was there for him, and he went and he made his dwelling among us. So what we do is we leave that which is safe and we go to that which is uncomfortable. Three reasons why we will not do this. Number one, because we've not been invited to do so. Can I remind you that Jesus wasn't, wasn't invited to this earth either, right? No one was saying, Jesus, come. Come, Jesus, we're sinners in need of grace. Come. Remember when God entered into the uh, garden after Adam and Eve sinned? Do you think they were there? Welcome, God. Great to have you. Let's talk. No, they ran for their lives. They ran and tried to hide. And so we don't want to be involved in people's lives because we're comfortable where we're at and we haven't been invited to speak into theirs. Number two, not only have we not been invited, but I want you to also recognize that a second reason why we don't do it is because we don't think it's very loving to confront people. We don't want to be confronted, let alone do we want to confront someone else. It's not very loving to do so. And three, we don't think it's any of our business. Now I want you to think about this for a moment. Three reasons. We don't want to intrude in other people's lives. We don't want to uh, confront because we don't think it's loving. And three, we don't think it's our business. I want you to think for a moment. Your house is on fire. And your house is burning. And the firemen have come into the house and you come home and you see your house is on fire and you're like, hey, who said you could go into my house? Nobody invited you here. And you got mud on my carpet. You, you, listen, you can't just barge into someone's home and, and think you can put out a fire. Who are you to judge that my house is on fire? Maybe your house is on fire. Maybe you should go check your house. Don't worry about my house. No, a fireman wouldn't sit out there while a house is on fire and say, hey, nobody invited us in and it's kind of barging in if we just intrude on this. No, they see a fire and they enter into it because they recognize that they need to put the fire out. Christians need to put themselves out there that when they see something on fire that they go and sometimes listen you're going to step on other people's toes and that's why you do it with gentleness and respect and that's why you make sure that you check your life before you barge into someone else's but it should never be well I'm a sinner they're a sinner we shouldn't say it that's why we need to help confess our sins one to another and we need to get involved in one another's lives because our spiritual livelihood depends on it it depends on it now what happens the bible says that we will cover a multitude of sins this this idea of saving is a go-between between god and the person when I was a young boy, uh, my, my grandmother, my dad is from the Middle East. My grandparents, of course, are from the Middle East as well. I had a grandma on my dad's side, uh, the sweetest, nicest grandma in the world. Never, I never heard her say anything bad about anybody or anything. Sweet little grandma. Get the picture of the sweetest, nicest little grandma, and that was Grandma Bedal. The little thing, four feet, five inches. I would go to hug her, and I'd miss her. Okay? And... And the children, when we would be at our house, would inevitably at some point get into some craziness and we would break something of grandpa's, whether it was his TV or something on his workbench, and the dads would come. And the dads would be hollering and the dads would be yelling. 
And they would just be all angry. And my grandma from Iraq, she would come running in and she would get in between us and the dads. And she would be doing this, okay? And she would be a go-between and she would say, hey, hey. And she would use a Turkish phrase that I remember to this day, vermiyesa. Vermiyesa means don't be harsh with them. Take it easy. Settle down. And she was telling the dads, listen, I know you want to kill them. But I'm not going to let you. I'm going to go on your on these kids' behalf and say, they're just kids. Don't be harsh with them. When we go and we rescue the wanderer, what we do both for God and for us is we tell God, hey, this is one of your children. Don't be harsh with them. Be merciful. You are a forgiving God. You're a loving God. Now, why do we do that? Does God forget? Does God get out of control with his anger? No. But what we are doing is we are telling the offender that we're on behalf of you going to the God. And we're going to our God and we are seeking his mercy and his grace. And it's a reminder to them that they're loved and they're cared for. We are interceding on the wanderer's behalf. But here's the problem. The problem is, is that what the person has done is ugly. It's heinous. Some wanderers never come back because they feel so guilty and so broken that they'll never be accepted. So they left. They, what they did was, in many ways, in their eyes, unpardonable. How could they ever be used? Remember John Mark? Young John Mark was on a missionary journey with Paul. And we don't know what he did, but Paul was just done with John Mark. Man, this guy is of no good for us. And Barnabas said, listen, let's give him another chance. And Paul and Barnabas split because they, they, they don't agree on whether John Mark is usable or not. And Barnabas takes John Mark, and John Mark builds up a reputation. And he builds up a good reputation. At one point, Paul says, bring John Mark with you. He'll be of great use to me. You see, when we fail... The last thing we want to do is see the people that we have failed. So that same grandma in that same house, I was seven years old, and we had a family gathering together, and my parents had just bought a new car. And I'm old enough that the car didn't have all the safety features that they have now. And for those that are older than me, know that back in the day, you could put a car into gear without putting a key into it, without a locking mechanism. And I had my cousins with me. We're all in the car. We're playing around in the car. And I said, look, watch, I can drive. And I start doing this, vroom, vroom, vroom. And I'm doing exactly what my dad did at seven years of age. Kids are laughing behind me and all of that. And I said, watch, this is what my dad does. And I grab this gear shifter and I move it into gear, into neutral. And my grandparents lived in Boulder Hill and they lived on on a uh, slope driveway. And the car started to move. And the car started to move quite a bit because it was quite a slope. And by the end of the time that we had gotten to the street, all of a sudden you hear this bang. And behind me is a brand new Oldsmobile. And the whole, the two windows shattered. The whole doors, they couldn't be opened. And all my cousins run for the hills. And my dad and my two uncles come running out with my grandpa. And there I am sitting in the front seat. I'm going to tell you something. I've never been so scared in my life. I've done it. I've done the unpardonable. Not only is my dad mad, but my two uncles are mad. My grandpa's mad. And to get a grandpa mad, back in the day, grandpas weren't as nice as they are today, by the way. Okay? 
So I've got the holy trinity of angry dads mad at me. And my dad takes me to the back room, and he's yelling at me. And he's angry, and we didn't have a lot of money. And I know he's thinking, how in the world am I going to pay for this brand new car to be fixed? And the neighbor comes out, and he's angry, and he's yelling at my dad. And I'm feeling like the whole world is collapsing upon me. And my dad says, just wait till you get home, son. Oh, wait till you get home. And then he left. And I remember sitting there. And I'm losing it. I'm bawling my eyes out. And you know a kid's really, really sorry when they start hiccuping, you know. (laughs) And I I just cannot stop crying. I've lost it. I don't want to see anybody. I remember very vividly. I just want to dig a hole and never be seen again. I have failed. I have blown it. And then Grandma Badal comes in. And Grandma Badal comes in and she sits down next to me. And I am just totally uncomposed. And she says, listen, I love you. Oh, Tim, I love you so much. And she says, your cousins love you. And your aunts love you. And your moms love you. And I said, what about my dad? And yeah, I don't know, son. That's still open. That's still up in the air. But we love you. We love you. And then she says, come on. And I said, I don't want to go out there. No, Grandma, don't make me go out there. I don't want to be out there. And she took me into the bathroom, and with a warm washcloth, she wiped my face, and she helped me get my composure back. She says, we're going to go sit. And in the Middle Eastern family, you sit around the table. I don't know if you know, but from my physique, we eat a lot. And, uh, and everybody's sitting around the table. And I walk in, and everybody got quiet. And my grandma says to my grandfather, who always sat at the head of the table, she says, get up. And she put me at the head of the table. And she said, she served, by the way, in the Middle Eastern culture, you serve the patriarch of the the oldest man in the family first. And she says, but Tim's going to be served first. And then she looked at the family and she said, Tim has done wrong, but in family we forgive things. We've all made mistakes. And she said, we're going to show Tim our love. And even my dad had to swallow a whole lot of his anger. And I was restored. And I'm going to tell you something. I've never forgotten that. Because I remember the depths of where I felt to where I was. And the feeling of being received back after doing wrong was glorious. So what happens We go and we rescue, and when we rescue, we're going to bring this person back to the flock, and people are going to say, but hey, that guy did this, or that guy did that, or man, that guy lost his testimony in that. And we say, hey, listen, he's sought forgiveness, he's repented of his sins, and our job now is to bring him back and to cover that multitude of sins, to go before them and say, it's forgiven, it's forgiven. You stand forgiven. Now be restored. You see, God has a rescue mission for all of us, but we've got to know who's around us. We've got to know our family. And we've got to know the key steps to which people wander away so we can go after them. And when we bring them back, we go before God and for our fellow brothers and sisters and we remind the people that this wanderer has been forgiven. It's here that Jesus says, when we do this, a party breaks out in heaven. That there's rejoicing in heaven. We've got a job to do. Let me close with this and, uh, and we'll close our time. One major event in World War II stands above all others as seemingly miraculous through the hands of everyday people. 
In the spring of 1940, Hitler's armored tank division of Panzers were overrunning France. The Dutch had already surrendered, and so had the Belgians. And more than 250,000 British soldiers and another 100,000 Allied troops were now stuck with their backs to the wall on the coast of France in the channel port of Dunkirk. They faced imminent capture and probably death. Hitler's troops, only a few miles away in the hills of France, closed in for an easy kill. The Royal Navy had enough ships to pick up only 17,000 men and send them to safety. Parliament was given a word that they should brace for a national tragedy and heavy losses of life. Then while the troops were waiting for their impending death, a bizarre fleet of ships began to appear on the horizon of the English Channel. Fishing boats, tugboats, lifeboats, rowboats, sailboats, yachts, even an island ferry named Gracie Fields and the American Cup Challenger Endeavor were all seen on the English Channel, all manned by civilians, speeding for a rescue. The ragtag armado rescued the remaining troops of over 300,000 and returned them safely to shore. Winston Churchill would say it was the single greatest search and rescue mission ever done in the history of mankind. And he said it was the number one reason why the Allied forces were able to destroy Hitler and the Nazi powers. Because a group of people saw a need and they came to the rescue. Brothers and sisters, we all run the risk of wandering. And James closes out this letter by telling us there are some who are trapped. There are some who are in danger of being captured by the evil one. We, the church, are God's armada. We are the ones with all kinds of ships, all kinds of shapes, all kinds of sizes, with all kinds of personalities and backgrounds that God has called to go rescue the lost. The question is, will you do it? James finishes his letter with a calling. A calling to seek and to rescue that which is lost. That's what living real faith in real life is all about.